story is told of a farmer who happens to be named Farmer Jones. All farmers are named Jones. And uh, um, anyway, Farmer Jones got out of his car and he was heading uh, for a friend's door. He noticed that there was a pig running around in the yard with a wooden leg. And his curiosity aroused him and he asked, uh, he said, hey Fred, how'd that uh, pig there get a wooden leg? He said, well Mike, there's a, that's a mighty special pig. He says, a while back a wild boar attacked me while I was walking in the woods and that pig there came a-running, went after that boar, chased him away, darn near saved my life. He says, oh, that's how the boar got a wooden leg? He goes, oh no, he was fine, but a bit later we had that fire. Says that it started in the shed up against the barn. Well, that there old pig started squealing like he was stuck, woke us up. Before we got out of there, that darn thing had herded all the animals out of the barn and saved every one of them. He goes, oh, did he get burned in the fire and that's how he got the wooden leg? He goes, oh, no, that's not it at all. He goes, he was a mite winded, though. He goes, when my tractor hit a rock, rolled down the hill onto the pond, I was knocked clean out. When I came to, that pig had gone into the pond, dragged me out before I drowned. Saved my life. He goes, so that's how the pig got the wooden leg? He goes, uh, nope, cleaned him up a bit though. He goes, well, how'd the pig get the wooden leg? He says, well, you know, a pig like that, you don't want to go eating them all at one time. <laughs> oh, okay, let anyone who hasn't had any bacon or ham cast the first stone. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about the story, in case some of you are wondering if there was something interesting about it, is that uh, that's, one, that's one confused farmer, isn't, don't you think? I mean, think about it. That's one confused man. Man, that's a special pig, but you know what? I'm kind of confused whether I should be eating him or, or honoring him. And uh, that's the struggle that he's going through. And you know, I thought about that in light of many men that I know who have the similar type of struggle. They're not struggling with whether they should honor the pig or eat the pig, but they're struggling with whether they should honor God or live to please themselves. And as I mentioned last week, as we finished our study of future events, that I would do a delayed Father's Day message. So most guys got bombed last Friday, or they were bombarded and showered with love and affection. And uh, we're going we're gonna to correct that this morning. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, perhaps you can relate to such a struggle. You know, many of us are in that type of tug of war. We want to do what's right before God. We want to be used by God. We want to know him deeper. We want to know him better. We want to be assured of our relationship with him. Because ultimately, every one of us realize that regardless of how healthy or well we feel today, it's inevitable that one day that we're going to have to, we're going to check out and we're going to stand before the God who created us. And so we want to make sure that our relationship with God is right. For those who stop long enough and think about the inevitability of that event, I was reminded of that yesterday when I was asked to go visit or called Friday night and I went to visit a gentleman who was in the hospital. He has lung cancer and as I walked in it was just he and his wife. And God impressed upon me the truth of this one, one, one fact and that is this. It doesn't really matter how much money we make. It doesn't matter what our accomplishments are here in this life. It doesn't matter even what we drove to go to the hospital for that particular event. When it's all stripped and said and done, when it comes right down to it, that it's basically a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the God who made us. We either know him or we don't. We're either fearful of the day where he calls us home or, we are, or, or, or calls us out of this life to be judged. Or we're confident and assured that our relationship with him is what it's supposed to be. And we can look forward, as difficult as that is, to that moment where he calls us back. And as I mentioned last week, we're all ambassadors. For those who have put our faith and trust in Christ and believe that God did love us enough so much that he sent Christ into the world to die for our sins. For those of us who believe in him, the Bible promises that we will not perish, we will not be judged because Jesus, as the song just said, Jesus took all the wrath of God and judgment upon himself. And so we realize that we can with confidence look forward to the day where we leave this life and enter into the next one because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place on that cross. And we're excited about that for those who know, it, know him. But those who don't, obviously there's fear and trepidation and well, there should be because God puts the fear of God in the heart of every human being that God through everything that he's created wants to demonstrate that he is there and that we need to seek him with all of our heart. The greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So the Bible is very clear that God wants every person he's ever, ever made to come into that loving relationship with him. Even while we were sinners and while we were in rebellion against him, God sent Christ to die for us. 
and what a wonderful truth that is. But when we're sitting there, we're laying there in that hospital bed, if that's the way God so chooses to call us out, we begin to realize that everything else in life is stripped away. And so as we understand that today, we'll begin to live a life that's pleasing to God. We'll begin to live a life that seeks God and tries to understand who God is and what His purpose is for our life. And that's an important thing that every one of us need to do because in the final analysis, it is the only thing that matters. In the final analysis, that gentleman that I went to see yesterday, the only thing that will matter when he gives up his last breath in this life is whether he's come to faith in Jesus Christ that will assure him that he'll be absent from his body and present with the Lord. And from the moment that he accepted Christ, that he lived a life that was pleasing to God, so one day he will be rewarded for that which he built upon, which is the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and him alone. And as we consider this and as we struggle with this, I understand that there is a, there's a tug of war that goes on in the hearts of every one of us. Because on one hand, we want to do what's right before God, we want to honor God with our life. We want to be pleasing to God with the things that we do. Because first of all, we understand the price that Jesus paid in order to forgive us the death that he paid, even a death on the cross. So we want to be pleasing to God because not because that's what's going to get us into heaven, but because we realize what Jesus gave up on our behalf. And so we want to please God, and yet there's our other side of us, and that side is the reality that, you know what, we just don't take it as serious as we should. We want to please God, but we want to please ourselves. We want to honor the pig, but we want to eat him at the same time. You know what I'm saying? And that's kind of the way that it is. And so as we struggle with all these things, we need to ask the question, basically, what should we do to make sure that what we're doing is tracking in the direction that God wants us to go? And the answer is very simple. We need to turn to this book. Because in the Bible, God not only reveals his character to us and his plans for our forgiveness and our salvation, which I've already mentioned, is through faith in Christ and in him alone. But he also tells us, after we put our faith and trust in Christ, he tells us that there is a way that he wants us to live. The word of God is living and active, the Bible says, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart to separate bone from marrow. All scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped adequately to do everything that God wants us to do. So we turn to this book that's a lamp unto our feet. God shines right on us. And every time that we open this and we begin to learn from it, every time that I open it and begin to instruct from it, I am confident of this, that the word of God when it goes out never returns void or empty. And it goes out for the purposes in which God intended it for, for it to go out. So even though I don't know you, and I often run into people say, you know, did my wife talk to you? Did uh, my kids talk to you? Did some, someone, my friends call you? It's like, you know what? Sometimes they do. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> and sometimes they don't. So you'll need to guess whether or not they did or didn't. But the reality of it is, is this. Who cares who talked to whom as long as you understand it's God speaking to you? And if it's truth, regardless, you need to deal with it. Whether you like it or not. And so do I. Some of the hardest things I've ever taught are the things I've had to learn myself and put into practice before I even had the confidence to stand here and say, you know, this is what we all need to do, and uh, I need to do it first. And that's the way it should be. Amen. <laughs> but the point is this. This is God's chosen vehicle to instruct us as to how he would choose for us to live. It provides knowledge. It provides wisdom, which is the proper application of that knowledge or instruction. So in our time together today, what I'd like to do to honor those men who are here and to also challenge us as men is to look at what the Bible says are four qualities of a godly man. Now look at that guy. He is pumped up. He is ready to go. So four qualities of a godly man. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have it, share with the person next to you and see what God has to say are the four qualities of a godly man. As we're turning there, I want you to understand something. First of all, you need to note that this message is for everyone. So for those of you who are sitting there thinking, particularly those of the female gender, who are sitting there thinking, all right, finally, they're going to get nailed. The word of God is for everyone. And, and, and also, if you're not married, the Word of God is, a, is also for single men as well. So here's the deal. 
If you are a single man, this is the kind of man that you should aspire to become. So often in our culture, we're more concerned with what we're going to, you know, what we're going to do when we grow up as opposed to who we should be regardless of what it is that we do. See, God is more concerned with who we should be than what we do, though he cares about that. But we can do a whole bunch of different things, and we're still going to be who we are in the midst of whatever profession that is. So if you're a single guy, this is what you should aspire to become. If you're a married guy, obviously it'll become more apparent as we go through this. If you are a single young woman, this is the kind of guy that you need to be looking for if you're looking for someone to date. This is the kind of guy that you want to date because the kind of guy that you date will ultimately be the kind of guy you marry. There seems to be some type of correlation between dating and marriage. All right, so you understand that? You know, some, it's amazing to me, we're just dating. Well, why? If it isn't going anywhere, don't waste your time. If it is going somewhere, it better be with the right guy. All right? So this is what we're looking at. So this applies to everyone, unfortunately, to all you ladies who thought you were off the hook. Now, as we read the passage, I will make another point in a second. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 8, we read these words. It says, Deacons, likewise, be men of dignity, not double-tongued or, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are, are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as we read this passage, I fear that there is a possibility here that some of us are thinking as men, hey, you know what? This passage is for leaders of the church. And if I go back to the first verse, I notice it talks about those who aspire to the office of overseer or elder slash pastor. This has to do with the qualifications for an elder or pastor. As we look at verse 8, this has to do with the responsibilities of the qualifications of a deacon, another leader in an office of the church. So I fear, not everyone, but some of you are thinking, I have no desire to ever obtain that type of position. Don't want to be an elder, don't want to be a pastor, don't want to be a deacon. So therefore, what? This passage doesn't apply to me. I'm just an average guy. And I'm setting the bar really low. <laughs> you know, no sense trying to jump over something that you can trip over. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm setting it as low as I can set it. Yeah, I want you to consider something here. The English word deacon is a transliteration of a Greek word, diakonos, which simply means this, servant. It means humble servant. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give. Throughout the New Testament, Paul and the rest of the writers of the New Testament always uh, attribute to themselves the character of servant. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. A bond servant was the lowest of all servants. If you can believe that even servants have a hierarchy, a bond servant was kind of an apprentice service, the lowest servant that there is. And the Bible says that we are all to be in service for Jesus Christ. We are all to be servants of not only God, but one another. So if you try to write it off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I think that, you know, that's a stretch. Because the office of deacon, as it is introduced in the Bible, is in Acts chapter 6, the office of deacon was introduced in the Bible to free the elders or the pastors so that they can concentrate on the ministry that they are given by God, which is what? To study and to teach the Word of God and to pray for the congregation and to provide spiritual oversight to protect the flock from the deceptions of the world which would draw them away from doing what God has called them to do. Now you stop and think about it. That's a very simple job description. What was happening then, and it still happens today, is that the pastor 
all of a sudden gets hung up on all the peripheral activities that go along with the church instead of the one thing that he's called by God to do, which is what? To study the Word of God and to preach the Word of God. To pray for the congregation and to provide spiritual oversight. The only way that we can protect one another from the deception of the world is what? Through truth. When the Word of God is preached and truth goes out, it's easy to recognize that which is a counterfeit. If the truth is not preached, then counterfeit is introduced even into the very church to where the church doesn't even recognize the direction it's going is now in opposition to the very God that they say that they believe and they trust. So the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6 was introduced, or the role or responsibility, was introduced so that lay people, the average guy, could jump in and help so that the pastor could concentrate on the ministry that he's been given by God, which is to teach and to preach the Word of God. So all the rest of the peripheral stuff that you find pastors getting hung up doing because people want them to do it, it just shows either they have no courage or lack of conviction. When people are dragging them into 15 different directions saying, we're having this function or that function, we want you to do this, that, and the other thing, you know what? If it interferes with the study and the preaching of the Word of God, you just kindly say, I'm sorry, I will send someone else that's on our staff, I will send another lay person that's able to do that. Somebody else can go visit the hospital, somebody else can go to your barbecue, somebody else can be there so that you feel connected to whatever it is you're trying to feel connected, because my primary responsibility and accountability before God is what? To preach the Word of God. And i got to answer to him for that. So don't try to drag me away and all these other things. If I can do it and it doesn't interfere, I'll be glad to do it. But understand my job uh, description. Now, for the average Joe, he says, hey, you know what? We want to make sure you keep studying and preaching the Word of God. So we're going to jump in and guess what we're going to do? We're going to start to serve. We're not just going to come and sit in a seat and listen to a great message that doesn't even impact our lives so that we leave here and it doesn't impact anything that we do. We are going to become what? Doers of the Word and not hearers only. Because ultimately, as the Word of God goes out, the question that you always got to ask yourself is, how does, this, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? If you're sitting here and you don't know if you died, if you're going to heaven, and I say the only way you can do it by the authority of the Word of God is by believing in Jesus Christ, and you're sitting there saying, you know what, I don't think I know Him, how does that apply to me? Here's how it applies. Then you know what, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. That's how it applies to you. Now, if you're sitting there going, I know the Lord, I put my faith and trust in Him, I'm assured that the day that I die, I'm going to heaven, but what am I supposed to be doing now? Then as you, as you listen to the Word of God and, and you read it and you study it, and God goes, here's how this applies to you, then you say, then you know what, Lord, what must I do? That's what you must do. You must be obedient to the Word of God. This is not that hard. What's hard about it is being obedient because God's Word is very clear. It's easy to understand. The problem is the heart of man, which is in rebellion against God, whether it is coming to put our faith and trust in Christ or subsequent put our faith and trust in Christ, when God calls us to do something, we've got to struggle with, am I going to obey or not? It's as simple as that. So as we read this, we need to recognize and understand that this does apply to all of us. We are all to be servants of the living God, and we are all to serve one another. It applies to us. Whether you like it or not, it applies to us, and so we're going to deal with it. Number one, what are the four qualities that should be apparent in the life of every Christian man? Number one is personal integrity. Personal integrity. Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, integrity is one of those lost words in our society. And uh, as we look at this, uh, personal integrity is the idea that is portrayed in this particular passage, and it's behind a man who is, notice in verse 8, says deacons likewise must be men of dignity some of your translations will have reverence some will have grave but the, the reality of what's being said is that we must be men of dignity or men of personal integrity the word literally means a worthy of respect what's fascinating it's a word that was taken from the root word which means to worship listen to me very carefully personal integrity flows out of a heart that's in tune with God and worships God. Personal integrity flows out of a heart that's in tune with God and worships God. Integrity is the man who says, He is God and I am not. And therefore I worship Him and I serve Him 
because I am underneath him from a standpoint of authority. For those who worship God and love God, integrity flows from the heart of that man. Now, this is what's really important as we're considering the relationships that we're going to have with other human beings, and that is this, that we want to make sure that the person, now I'm talking to young ladies again, the person that you want to date, the person you ultimately want to marry, it's very important that the person that you are attracted to is one who is attracted and in love with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he will treat you with the dignity that God wants you to be treated with. Because it's what? Husbands love your wives as what? Christ loves the church. Well, if a guy doesn't know Christ and he doesn't know the love of God, how's he going to love you according to the standard that's set in the Word of God? So we need to recognize and understand it all flows from the heart that's in tune with God. A person who loves God and wants to obey His commandments is one who is going to treat you better than you ever thought you'd be treated ever by any human being. And it's important to recognize that and understand that. The man who has come to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who desires to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to obey his commandments, will be a man of personal integrity. According to this passage, as we look at it, what does it mean to have personal integrity? Let's take a look at some of the things that he mentions. Number one, he is not double-tongued. God pre presents it in a negative so that we understand what he's trying to get across to us, and that is this. A man of personal integrity is not double-tongued. The Indians used to call it speaking with a forked tongue. And all you got to do is picture a forked tongue. It has two different directions. It's almost like a V. Talking out of this, and I like to call it this. You know, the guy who talks out of both sides of his mouth. You ever meet someone like that? Talk out of both sides of their mouth? It's interesting because as we look at this, God is saying that that is not a man of personal integrity. You know, if you analyze it, it either demonstrates this. The guy who talks out of both sides of his mouth, I've become convinced of this. Either is a man who is gutless and spineless and lacks courage, or as a man who has no convictions whatsoever and is blown here and there by whatever anybody says, that's the way they're going to go. And in practical reality, here's where it comes down to. It's, it's almost like the politicians of our day. If this is this group who is opposed to a certain issue, and I know you're opposed to it, because I'm not that stupid, that's why you invited me, you want to hear that I'm opposed to it too. I'm opposed to it. Y'all applaud. This group over here is all for it. Now, you're not sitting in the same building at the same time because you can't stand each other. You're somewhere else. You're somewhere else. I get invited to speak to you. Guess what? You for it? I'm for it. If they said I'm against it, they really didn't understand the context of it because they don't know what is means. So, <laughs> so we come back over here. See, and we play this, and we tell, whatever you want to hear is what I'm going to say, because the only thing that matters is I get elected, and one day I get a pension for life. That's the way it is. That may be the way it is, but that's not the way God's people should be. You may not like what I say to you, but I'm going to at least tell you what I, what I believe and the reasons I believe it, and I'm going to have conviction about it, and I'm going to tell you. Now, you may not like it, but at least you'll understand clearly where I'm coming from. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear because I don't have the courage to tell you exactly what I believe. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear because it's going to make you feel good even though when I walk away I'm going to go over to these people and tell them those people are nuts. Can you believe they believe that? And what's amazing to me is that guess what? Christians aren't immune to that type of nonsense. We all get people who come up and say, hey, you're doing a great job. Then they go to the people that don't like you and you say, you know what? We can't stand that guy. We don't want to be identified with that person. Hey, but secretly, hey, keep up the good work. What kind of conviction and courage is that? God says if you are a man of integrity, you'll not be double-tongued. What you say is what you mean. And even though the people that are in front of you may be in opposition to you, you still have the boldness and the conviction to tell them what they may not want to hear, but you're going to tell them anyway, so when they walk away, they're not going to say, what did he say? Oh, we heard what he said, we just don't like it. Well, who cares? Is it truth? If it's truth, deal with it. And if we can agree to disagree, then we'll do that as well. But at least you're going to know where we stand for. Now, let's get this into a personal realm. Let's ask this question of the men who are here. Can those around you, your wife, your children, your friends, your family, your business associates, count on you to honor your word? 
when you say something, do you follow through? If not, I would suggest that you begin to become a man of integrity and not a man that's double-tongued. Say it. Even when they don't want to hear it, tell them anyway. Because you know why? They'd rather hear the truth than hear you lie to their face and make you look like you're not a man of respect or a man of integrity. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it? Because you want to tell people, you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to confront it. You don't have to go through it. You want to listen to wah, 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 wah. So what do we do? We all do this, guys, right? Uh, I'll think about it. You know, if you're going to think about it, think about it. But also tell them when you're going to get back to them with an answer. And my answer always was the same. If, if one of our children ever asked us something and I wasn't ready to deal with it right now, I'd just say, you know what? It, 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 it's no. Then they go, why don't you think about it? <laughs> okay, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you in a little while. You know, I'll get back to you by a certain time or whatever. I mean, the same thing with business. It doesn't make any difference. If you're not ready to hear no, then give them time to think about it and pray about it and then get back to you. You still may ultimately hear no, but you know, at least there's been some thought put into it. Don't be double-tongued. If you're a godly man, the people in your life can count on what you say coming to fruition. Personal integrity also means that a man is not given to much wine. A man that's not given to much wine. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, that's good, not much, just some. <laughs> you, know? you know, we look at that and go, ah, you know, not much wine. What is that exactly meaning? The statement literally carries the idea of not putting one's trust in wine or in alcoholic beverages for, for, from our culture standpoint, of devoting one's interest and attention to it. Basically, what God's trying to get across is this. God wants every man to understand the quality of a godly man is that we do not trust in anything or anyone other than God himself. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And guess what? He'll set your path straight. We don't need to lean on another crutch. And that's what it comes down to. And that's the purpose or the point that's behind this passage. We do not need to lean on any other crutch because our God is more than sufficient to hold us up in our time of need. I don't need to when I get home from a tough day at, at, at the office or a tough day on the job site. I don't need to run to the refrigerator and grab a beer to what? Unwind. I don't need to have a martini lunch to what? Unwind. The pressures are just driving me crazy. I've got to turn somewhere to get support and somewhere for comfort. We don't need to do that. God is more than sufficient. He's more than able to carry us through the difficult times of this life. We don't need to run and turn to alcoholic beverages to forget all of our woes and all of our troubles and all of our problems because all they do is what? All the alcoholic beverages do is compound them. We live in a culture that has accepted drinking as a way of life. We still frown upon certain drug use. But the reality of it all is this, that alcohol is a drug. And if you don't believe that, notice the next time you have a cough or a cold and you read the medication that the doctor prescribes, guess what? It's filled with alcohol. It is a drug. We need to see it as exactly the Word of God sees it. And if you don't believe me, turn back to the book of Proverbs. Let's take a couple, uh, let's look at a few passages that God very clearly talks about when he talks about this particular quality of a godly man. In Proverbs chapter 20, look at verse 1. And don't forget, as we read these passages, I didn't write them. I'm just explaining them. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is a brawler, and whoever gets intoxicated is not wise. Wine is a mocker. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. Listen. God is not mocked. He's not fooled by what we do in our life. Whatever a man sows, we're going to reap. We can't, you know, do smoke and mirrors with God. He sees right through it. He knows exactly how we did the card trick. And the same word is used here of drinking. Wine is what? A mocker. 
It is deceptive. It tells you one thing, leads you to believe something, and it delivers something totally different. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, which leads to physical violence. Whoever gets intoxicated by it is not wise. Turn with me to Proverbs 23. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, listen, my son, and be wise. It says, and direct your heart in the way. Remember, the book of Proverbs is about two ways of living. There's God's way and there's man's way. There's a way that seems right to man, which ends in destruction, and there's God's way that always leads to blessing and benefits if we are obedient to God. So he's saying, hey, you know what? He says, listen, my son, and be wise. Heart in the way, the way of God. It says, do not, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Specifically, it has to do with our affiliation, our association with those who like to party hard, as they say. And what's interesting about that is this. 1 Corinthians 6 says, what do you have in common, a believer with an unbeliever? What fellowship is there with darkness and light, with Satan, with, with, uh, with Christ and Satan, basically? He's saying, you know what, what do you have in common? Let me give you an illustration. I met with a guy this past week, is a professional athlete, plays on a baseball team, and we had lunch together. And he said that, you know, when he was trying to be available to guys on his team that didn't believe in God, have never put their faith and trust in Christ, or not believers according to what the Bible says, and, you know, try to spend time with them to, to develop a relationship or a friendship so that he would have an opportunity at some point to be able to share how much God loves them and how God sent Christ to die for them. So they would go out and they would have dinner together. He said and they would go out to have dinner and they would go out, at least during every road trip they made a decision that they'd go out and have dinner together, these six particular guys. So the last time that they went out together, and he said, and this is where God really started to teach him something about his associations. The last time they went out to dinner, you know, all of a sudden, you guys, he said, you know, I didn't have a problem with having a glass of wine with my meal. And, you know, and the Bible doesn't teach abstinence, so we need to understand that as well. Let's not go to extremes. The Bible doesn't teach abstinence, but it does teach that drinking is not wise, that it always leads, if it leads to drunkenness, it's going to lead to problems. So my, my, my take on it is this. You can't get drunk if you don't have the first drink. You want to write that down? Jot it down. <laughs> Jot it down, take it with you. I mean, it's true, though, right? I mean, you can't. You can't get drunk unless you have the first drink. And then the first drink leads to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. Then you're drunk, and then you're disobedient, and then you're disobedient before God. So the bottom line is that why risk going that direction in case you can't stop it? But that's, be that's between you and the Lord. But I want to be upfront about it. The Bible doesn't teach abstinence, and we need to be aware of that. But it does teach that drunkenness is a sin. So anyway, back to the story. So they're out, and, uh, and, you know, and the wine's flowing, and this particular gentleman might have a glass of wine with his meal, but he doesn't get drunk, he doesn't drink. Um, all of a sudden, these other guys are just getting hammered. And when they get hammered, all of a sudden, the stories start to you know, turn to off-color stories. They start talking about women. They start talking about dirty jokes. They start talking about things that were not pleasing to God from his perspective as a Christian, and yet he was there associating himself with them. Then the next thing he knows, that one of the guys starts to call him out over an injury that he has, like he's dogging it and he should be given 100%, and he starts to get very vocal and angry with him. And all these people in this restaurant are looking over at him. And he says, and I'm sitting and I'm thinking, there's all these glasses and bottles on the table, and I'm thinking, how am I going to grab this guy by the neck without breaking all these glasses and bottles in front of me? He said, then I'm realizing that's not very Christ-like. You know, and he's like, man, he's in this struggle of being there with these guys, and it led to all of this. And his point to me was, he had to finally get up and walk away. But his point was exactly the point was being made here. You know what? Don't associate with people that are like that, because you know, as soon as they start getting drunk, they, there's no voice of reason at that point. You can't sit there and say, well, let's change the subject. And he's like, oh, you know, that's a good point. He tried to laugh it off. Let's change the subject. And he wouldn't change the subject. He kept coming back at him, kept coming back at him, kept coming back at him. So finally, he was like. I'm going to kill this guy. And, and that's not real conducive to trying to show the love of Christ to teammates or other people that you know. I want to beat you to death, and in the meantime, I'm going to ask you, have you ever trusted in Christ as your Savior? <laughs> because you know what? You're going to be standing before him shortly. But the, but the point that he was making, and don't miss that, is that you know, there, there's a problem here. And so as we look at this, and, and, and there's several other passages, but Proverbs uh, tw uh, 29, I'm sorry, Proverbs 23, verse 29 through 35, that whole passage deals with it, read it on your own. Proverbs 31, 4, and 5 has to do with leadership. And it says this, It is not for kings, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. 
lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. You notice what he says? It's not for leaders or those in a leadership position to be getting drunk because guess what? They'll pervert their role and responsibility as leaders and authority. He said, you'll forget what's right. You'll begin to do what's wrong. You'll pervert it. You're in a position of authority. But if you do not have a clear and sober mind, you have a possibility of distorting what God wants us to do. So let me get personal for a second and ask you a question. What good have you ever seen come out of drinking alcoholic beverages? Oh, it's fun. Good jokes. Laugh a little bit. Loosen up. How many of you ever seen that turn to what I just described? The ugliness, the pain, the hurt, the violence. I don't have a problem. The denial. I just like to have a drink every now and then, but maybe I just drank a little too much last time. Blah, 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 blah. And all it is, it's just rationalization and it's justification to do what God clearly says that we should not do. Listen to me as a man. As a Christian man who wants to be honoring to God in his life, wants to be used by God to reach the lives of others, we need to recognize and understand something. As a Christian, you and I are called on to serve others and work with others. Often, there are people that have problems in their life. And we need to be sober-minded, clear-thinking, focused on the Word of God so that we give them godly counsel. And if our counsel is in any way watered down by our own vices or bad habits before God, then we are not being a true representative of God and accurately portraying the message He wants to get across to them. We need to recognize that and understand that. I know this is difficult because you know why? When there's alcohol abuse or there's this type of situation in the home, it is very painful and there's nothing easy to listen to as I just share that. But I want you to understand something. The word of God is truth and the truth will set you free. Trust him. Believe him. Notice also that the man of God or godly man of personal integrity is not greedy for money. Personal integrity in the life of godly man is not greedy for money. It's not a purpose, a person that everything revolves around money. But back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's pretty obvious that, you know, Timothy is warned that those who love money or are lovers of money, says that those who love money have even wandered from or abandoned the very truth that they say they believe. As we look at this, this whole idea of personal, of personal greed rather than contentment is something that we need to deal with. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself, God has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. What he's saying is that I will always meet your need. Listen to this. The man who is in love with the pursuit of money will abandon the very God they say they believe. And they will also abandon the responsibilities that they have toward their family. All in the name of going out to make more money to provide for them, they are neglecting them of their very presence in their life. So many of us as men are in this pursuit to make so much money and to buy so many things that we don't even have time for the people that we say that we're doing it for. How ironic it is as I see marriages that fall apart because a guy is a workaholic who is just bent on making a ton of money, who loses his wife and his children in the process, and all the money that he made, they get half and walk away with it anyway, and he's going, but I thought I was doing it for you. And they're saying, you know what, we wanted you, we didn't want all that stuff, even though they say they didn't want that stuff, they make you believe they want that stuff, but listen to me, it doesn't matter, even if your family's telling you they want all that stuff, your responsibility before God is to be there for them. You understand that? Did that make sense? Because here's the way it usually works, here's the way most guys get, get fooled, it's like, I don't understand what you just said, you know, our families all want nice stuff. So we're thinking if we're out providing nice stuff for them, that we're doing what God's called us to do, and we're not. We're just doing what they've told us to do. And there's nothing wrong with being a provider for your family. I'll talk about that because you need to be a provider for your family. But there is a huge difference between needs and greeds, wants and desires. And the reality of it is this. As a man, you need to be there for your wife. And as a man, you need to be there for your children. And if it means saying no to making more money, then so be it. But you've got to be honoring before God. Now that, I know, is like, it's almost like what? It's like blasphemy on, on Wall Street. Because in our culture, man, you've got to make as much as you can make, and you've got to get as much as you can get, and you can buy as much as you can buy, and guess what? You get recognition for that. You get to be on the, the lists of people who are making a ton of money. Look at that recognition. You know what's amazing? You look at all those lists of people making all that money, most of them are on their third, fourth, fifth, sixth marriage now. 
There's a little irony to that, don't you think? Well, that's not what God calls us to be. Do you lie on your expense account? Do you cheat on your taxes? Do you deliver less to your customers than they pay for and expect? Do you compromise your faith in order to make more money? Here's a guy that maybe we can identify with to some degree. His name is Ur Orf Krieger. He was a hotel broker, friendly Midwestern grin, received the call about a choice, uh, a choice um, piece of property for sale in Spokane, Washington. He says he was thrilled. He knew the 140-unit Holiday Inn, minutes from the airport, perched on 13 acres of furry hillside overlooking the city was a buy, despite its multi-million dollar price tag. So instead of listing it for sale to someone else, he took the plunge and bought it himself. He says only one problem. The Inn's restaurant was the big money maker, and no wonder. The bar grossed an average of $10,000 a month. But Orv wasn't going to keep the bar, not that he wanted to impose his own views on others, but as a Christian, he chose not to run a business subsidized by alcohol sales. So the, ma the motel manager argued that if guests couldn't get a drink at the end, they'd be out the door to a competitor in a flash. He also gave Orv some convincing statistics that showed the motel couldn't make it outside without the bar. He politely listened, closed the bar. He must stick to his convictions. The manager promptly quit. Orv continued with his plans. He remodeled the hotel lobby, replaced the bar area with a cozy coffee shop brimming with greenery. In his first five years of business, food sales went up 20%. Room bookings went up 30%. Still, profits, profits aren't what they could have been if the bar remained open. The hotel would have been a real money-making machine. Orv's take, with his big Midwestern grin, wider than ever, his take was, beliefs aren't worth much if a fellow's not ready to live by them. Whoa. Could you imagine? Could you even begin to imagine what God can do through the man who devotes even the smallest amount of time to his pursuit of loving God with all of his heart rather than his pursuit of riches that really don't make any difference in the long run anyway? That gentleman that I visited yesterday, if the Lord so chooses to call him out through this illness that he has, all the money that he made in the world isn't going anywhere with him. It's all just being left behind. The only thing that goes on ahead are the things that he did that were pleasing in the sight of God that will be rewarded one day in eternity. The only thing that really is lasting are the memories and, and what he invested in the lives of his wife and his children. That will outlive him. And those are the memories that will carry them through the rest of their life. The money that he leaves them will be spent. But the memories of his personal integrity will go on forever. Interesting. Also, the uh, man of God four qualities of a godly man it has to do with spiritual maturity spiritual maturity back to first timothy chapter three notice what he says it says but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience the bible talks about the faith speaking of the christian faith and it's basically referring to spiritual maturity every godly man must grow spiritually and what that means very simple is this do you know what you believe do you know who you believe? Do you know why you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know what the Bible teaches? Are you familiar with why the Bible is a reliable source of information? Do you understand the great doctrines of the Christian faith? Do you understand the doctrine of God and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit? Do you understand the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation? Do you understand those things that have to do with angels and Satan's and demons, Satan and demons and, and the church and future things? The Bible says that we are to hold fast the mystery of faith which has been revealed to us, the faith. And you need time to develop those firm convictions. If you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, the first good question that's asked of you will turn you into a pretzel. You won't know what to say. You won't know what to do. And it won't take long before that person who turns you into pretzel can also turn you away from following God and doing what's right before God and leading you in a direction that is away from God. Listen to me. You are either walking in the direction of God and, and towards Him or you are turning your back on Him and you are walking away from Him. But those are the only two directions that are clearly taught in the Word of God. There is the way that seems right to man which is the way away from God and there is the way that is right to man and that is walking in the way that is pleasing to God. Those are the only two ways you can go and so as we look at this we have to have spiritual maturity and it's no wonder that many of us as men and I want to be hard on us for a second because many of us as men are not spiritually mature because we spend no time reading the Word of God you cannot grow spiritually if you're not in the Word of God the majority of books and anybody in the book selling business understands the majority of books are bought by women 
They're bought by women, they're read by women, they're bought by women to be given to men who don't read them. Right? Let's just be upfront about it. The only way you can learn about God and you can learn about the faith is spending time with God in His Word, studying the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, in prayer with God and fellowship with Him, in prayer with other men who are believers and holding you accountable, in fellowship with others who love the Word of God and everything revolves around speaking of God and the things of God. A friend of ours is down from Seattle. I had him come with me and he spoke to the angels last night. And you know what? He's like, I haven't seen him for a couple of years. We've known each other. We've been friends. Uh, we were involved together. I was a mentor, disciple type program. And you know what? We can get together and we can talk about the Lord and we can talk about spiritual things and we can challenge each other to grow spiritually. And man, you know what? I don't care if I don't see him for two years. We can pick right up where we left off because we're still walking in the same direction. And there's nothing better than that. Number three, that man of God, the godly qualities that we're talking about, also is laid out with, for, as far as marital fidelity. Notice what he says. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife. Husbands of only one wife. It's important to understand that what, what's being talked about here is a one-woman man. A guy who is sold out in love with his wife. And with her and her alone. He's committed to her. There's a word that guys, you know, hesitate to ever use, but you know, we're going to have to use it here. He's committed to her and to her alone. Every wedding that I have the pleasure to officiate at or preside at, I make a point during the wedding ceremony, specifically when the rings are exchanged. <clears throat> the point that I make is a very simple one, and that is this. The purpose of the ring, as it's given to one another, is to not only to be a symbol of the vows or the commitment that they made to one another. To me, it even goes bigger than that, and it accomplishes a lot more than that. When the ring is on your finger, basically what it's telling the rest of the world is, you're out of circulation. You know, it's saying, no trespassing. And think about how true that is. Every single guy, every single gal, when they're out and they're looking, they're meeting people, the first thing they look at is, they got a ring on their finger? No? All right. Possibility. Ring on the finger? Nah, forget about it. See, that's what commitment is all about. And the funny thing is that when people are feuding and fighting in their marriage, the first thing they want to do is what? Take off their ring. Oh, see that? Take this off. Throw at you. Here's your ring. Look at that green mark around my finger there. What's that all about? Should have taken off sooner. But, but that's true, isn't it? And, and so the symbolism is there. It has to do with commitment. A one-woman kind of guy. And a one-woman guy who's devoted and committed to his wife is committed, first of all, with his eyes. Job said that he made a commitment or a covenant that he would not lust after another woman. He's committed with his eyes. He guards his eyes against the things that he sees. Ask yourself a question. If you're committed to your wife, are you guarding your eyes against things that, you know, basically can cause problems in your marriage? Very real problem in our culture today, and let's be upfront about it, is pornography. Very real problem. Why? Because years ago, if you wanted to have, go and watch a pornographic X-rated movie, you had to go to the corner video store, you know, with, with a disguise on, so nobody knew it was you, getting something that you shouldn't have been seeing. Now you don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because it comes right into your house. It comes right into your office. It comes right into your den. It comes right into your study. It comes right into the room when nobody else is there, but you are on your computer and you're surfing the net. We need to be godly men. And we need to be men that don't go there. Because God says, don't go there. We need to make a commitment with our eyes. And we need to ask this question. <clears throat> you know, the what would Jesus do bracelets? Here's a great question. What would Jesus do? Would he be sitting there surfing the net? Checking out the pornographic websites? Would he be there you know, having movies filtered into his house that he wouldn't go out to see in public, but he wants to see it in the privacy of his home? Would Jesus do that? If he wouldn't do that, then why would you do that if you want to be more like Christ? We need to ask ourselves some tough questions as men. If we're committed to our wife, then you know what? What I would recommend also is don't even go there because all that it will do is produce a lack of contentment in your marriage. Think about it. It's like the ads, you know, the ads in the newspaper. You know, the reason that women are models is because they're not like everybody else. Isn't that true? 
They're just not. That's why they got the job. Think about it. If they were just the average like everybody, they wouldn't get the job. And we hate to say it, as beautiful as all of our wives are, we got to understand that I'm walking in very dangerous territory right now. <laughs> and I'm not going there. Wow, maturity. <laughs> oh, next. <sighs> a one-woman kind of guy is also committed with his mind. The Bible says that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Isn't that true? Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ I like what C.S. Lewis once said, talking about keeping, keeping our eyes committed to that which is good and also our mind. He says, if you look upon ham and eggs and lust, you've already committed breakfast in your heart. <laughs> I like that. But it's true, isn't it? We need to be committed with our minds. We need to ask ourselves the question, what I am thinking about, what I am entertaining, the thought that I'm now wrestling with, is it pleasing to the Lord? If it's not, you know what, God, hey, just flush this right out of my head right now. Because I don't want to go there. Because the re direction I'm going is away from you and not closer towards you. We need to be committed with our lips. We need to be very careful with how we speak to women around the office uh, in our relationships that we have with one another. Ephesians 4 says, you know what, hey guys, grow up. No coarse jesting or silly jesting. No dirty talk. No sexual innuendos. No playful games. No flirtatiousness when it comes to our relationship with women, of the, with women other than our spouse. You want to play flirty games? Play them with your wife. You want to talk the way you want to talk and kind of get her going, then you know what? Do it with your wife. But the bottom line is that we're to be committed with our lips. We've got to be very careful how we speak to one another and the message that we convey by the words that we speak and the way that we look and the things that we think. We also need to be very careful and be committed with our hands. How we touch one another. You know, there's a holy kiss, there's an unholy kiss. There's a holy hug and there's an unholy hug. If you've ever had somebody hug you a little longer than you want to be hugged, you know, it's a Seinfeld thing, you know, you're invading my space. You know, let me go now, it's okay, it's over. You know, we need to be careful about that. I'm a hugger. I'm Italian. I'm a hugger. I like to hug people. I like, you know, my wife's German. She likes to pat people on the back. So, you know, if she pats people, they burp. You know, it's just the way that it is. But, but, but I got to be careful about this because, you know, there, there's, there's a godly way of showing somebody that you care about them, and there's another way that you don't. You know, we, I like to hug guys. I don't have a problem with that. You know, we can love each other in Christ. I love to hug guys. I love to give them a big old bear hug and, and let them know that, you know what? Hey, it's good to know you. It's good to be a friend of yours. This iron sharpens iron, so is one brother that sharpens another. I don't have a problem with that, you know what? And, and, and I'm not, and I'm not the, you know, I don't have any lack of security about what other people think. I want to hug a guy, I hug a guy. You know what? Jesus hugged people. He didn't have a problem with it, but he did it in a way that was honoring to God. And also the last one is this. Hey, you know what? We got to honor God with our feet. Sometimes you know what that means, very simple? Get up and leave. Flee. The Bible says flee from immorality. Joseph in Potiphar's house was a great example when Potiphar's wife wanted to have sex with Joseph. And he said, that I can't do that. I cannot sin before my God and also before my boss. And she grabbed him and tore his clothes off. And he fleed naked right out into the street. He fled from immorality. And you know what? And he got thrown in jail because she said that he did it anyway. And he could have rationalized it and said, it doesn't matter, you know, I, I am if I do and I am if I don't, so, hey, what the heck, I might as well have a good time. He didn't do that because he wanted to honor God. And he fled from immorality. Sometimes you just got to get up and leave, just like those people are right now. You just got to get up and just leave. All right. You know, and I think, you know, think back in a practical way, just like, uh, just like my friend who got up and left the table when it started getting ugly. 
at their dinner when there was too many drinks that were, were being, uh, you know, partaken of that evening. He just got up and said, I got to leave. Because if I stay, it's going to get worse. And you know what? And for every young person, I want to I just challenge you to consider the same thing. If you are in an environment that is not pleasing to God, then just get up and leave. We've always told our kids, you know what? If you're in a situation of compromise and you pick up the phone, we'd rather come and get you than have you stay there and compromise what you know is right. As embarrassing and as hard as that is to do sometimes, and I know that it's like that's not the cool thing to do, and you know, and most young people, just like most old people, feel like I'm strong enough and I can be in this environment and it's not going to affect me. And I'm thinking, you know what? Well, here's a guy who loves the Lord, who wants to do what's right before God, and you know what? Before that evening was going to end, he was going to beat his teammate to a pulp. And he was a pretty mature believer. And he knew if he stayed any longer that it was going to get ugly, and he got up and walked out. And to him, I commend him and give him credit because he was obedient to the word of God. He got up and he left the situation. And you know what's funny is, and he was honest with me, he said, man, you know what though? But I felt like, you know, I felt like everybody thought like I was backing down. I said, you know what? Who cares what they think? The only thing that matters is what God thinks. And you know what? And you honored God by doing that. And if you had stayed any longer, you would have dishonored him by doing what you were thinking of doing. And the fourth thing is this, family stability. Family stability. Good managers of their children and of their own households. Family stability. How do you have family stability? What does it mean to rule or manage your children well? And by the way, it's specifically speaking of those who live under our roof or under our authority. It, has, it, 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 it takes the realm of those who are grown children outside of our responsibility and basically keeps it confined to those who are still residing in our residence. And regardless, I guess, of what age, you know, I don't care if you've got a 40-year-old still living at home with you, guess what? They're under your authority and you have a responsibility to, to, be, uh, to do what's right before God. And they also have a responsibility to honor your authority as well. And if that can't work out, then just show them the door, say, I love you grow up, go get a place to live. So, I, I'm running out of time, so I just had to cut to the chase on that one. So, but family stability, how do you get it? Number one, you teach. Train up a child in the way it should go. Carries with it the idea of teaching. You teach. You use every situation in life as a teaching experience. You don't get angry, you don't get upset, you don't get frustrated, you don't start yelling, screaming, saying stupid things that you regret. Even as frustrating as things can be when we're dealing with our children, you use it as a time to teach. You use it as a time to teach and to train our children to think as God wants them to think. So many of us don't know what to say as men. We get frustrated and go, they go, well, why? And you go, because I say. Whoa, there's some deep teaching. What is that? Because you say. What the question is this, but why do you say that? Because let me show you from the Word of God what God says about the subject. And we are all responsible to be obedient to His Word. We are all accountable to Him, me included. And the bottom line is this, as you think about some of the things that we talked about, is, hey, you know what? It's a lot easier to tell your kids, don't drink if you're not drinking. It's a lot easier to tell your kids to make their family a priority when they have their own family if you make yours a priority. It's a lot easier to teach your son to love their wife as Christ loves the church if they see you loving your wife as Christ loves the church. It's a lot easier for them to get it if they see it modeled in front of them. And that's really the rub here, isn't it? Do as I, don't do as I do, but do as I say. Who's grown up and heard that? I did. It's like, hey, you know what? Why? And it's like, because oh, it's just the right thing to tell you. Hey, well then, you know what? There's no conviction there. There's nothing deep there. There's no logic behind it. There's no reason behind it. So guess what? I'm going to end up doing what you're doing. Uh, we'll just all pretend like we had this conversation. Got it? Okay. That's the way it works. It's a lot easier to, to have your children understand the priority that, you know what? There are more valuable things than silver or gold. That a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. It's a lot easier to teach your kids to be children of integrity if you are a man of integrity. To teach them to tell the truth if you're not a man who tells lies. To teach them not to be uh, pursuing money and that's the only thing that makes a difference in life. If, an, if a reputation is more valuable according to the Word of God, 
It's a lot easier for Orv Krieger, the hotel owner, to teach his children that money's not everything, but there are some things that are more important than money, and we're not going to sell alcoholic beverages at this hotel, regardless of how many things I can buy with the extra money that we make. There is a principle that's at stake here, and I want to be pleasing to God in what I do. To teach your children, to discipline them, Meaning that you hold this as the standard, and if they go, they go aside from the Word of God, then you bring them back into the fold, whether they like it or not. To teach them the value of telling the truth regardless of the cost, and not to justify it, rationalize it, and come up with some way to figure out that, oh, you know what, it really wasn't a lie. Yes, it was. A lie is a lie, no matter how you spin it. No matter how you try to define is, a lie is a lie. That you provide for them, and that you protect them. Can you be a man who says to your children, you know what, do as I do, and you'll do well before the Lord. Is it worth it? Look at verse 13 in closing. For those who have served well, that have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing.